Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. According to a new book by the author and journalist Joan Smith, the violence perpetrated by men against women with whom they are in or were in intimate relationships is at epidemic level and ought long ago to have been recognised as a global crisis requiring a wide range of urgent and sustained interventions. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Joan about that book, Homegrown. Also in today's show, Roisin Ingle talks to recently elected Labour councillor Annie Hoy about why she has never been asked as many questions about her intention or not to have babies as she has in the last few weeks. And as if that all wasn't enough, I'll be joined shortly by the same industrious Roisin Ingle to hear what's been on her mind this week. But before we get started, I want to tell you about our competition. Fancy getting your hands on a luxurious chocolate hamper from Green and Blacks? Of course you do. The Irish Times has teamed up with Green and Blacks to give our listeners a chance to win a beautiful hamper filled with delicious products from their new velvet range, ideal for those indulgent moments. The velvet edition of chocolate bars offer a variety of signature flavours for all tastes in a smooth velvety finish. Dark chocolate, but not as you know it. The velvet fruit pouches offer a completely new taste in chocolate, a luxurious melange of fruit and dark chocolate in two tempting flavours. Carefully crafted by expert taste specialists, Green and Blacks invites you to unwind and savour every bite while bringing your taste buds on a heavenly journey. Escape the ordinary with Green and Blacks. To be in with a chance of winning one of those delicious hampers, go to irishtimes.com slash greenandblacks. I'm joined now by Roisin Ingle. Hello, Cathy. How are you? Roisin, I'm great. Good. And I know you have many things in your mind, as always. As always. There's always something. Uh, there's always something to talk about. But the first thing I wanted to tell our listeners was about a call out I've just published on irishtimes.com. And it might not seem it's totally relevant to the women's podcast, but you will, we will discuss why it is. It's a call out to working fathers. Working fathers and working dads is not a phrase that trips off the tongue necessarily. We're used to hearing about working mothers, working mums and how things they have to struggle and juggle and how challenging things are for them. But I just thought it was interesting and having some conversations on Twitter with some working fathers that they also struggle and juggle and they have things to say. And Father's Day is on Sunday. So I just wanted to let everyone know that if they have any uh, fathers or if there's any fathers listening, that they can go on irishtimes.com and sort of contribute and share what it's like in work to be a working father. You know, rushing off to the school concert that you've got to go to or trying to get some flexibility for your hours so that you can spend a little bit more time with your children because these are things that 
men also want to do. And I think for too long, the conversation has focused on women as parents, when actually there's a whole other uh, load of people who have stuff to say as well. And in a very negative way for men. I mean, for example, the whole business of paternity leave and the fact that many of them wouldn't take it. I mean, men really should start speaking up and this is a great opportunity for them to Exactly. Do so. We want to hear the stories and we'll publish the best ones on irishtimes.com and hopefully we'll, we'll continue this conversation because if we're going to get anywhere with that, all of these things, paternity, the gender pay gap, all that, we need to have uh, men on board too. Men in the, in the workplace sort of saying, oh, actually, I can't do that. Would you mind if I had a half day on this day because I've got to do this parenting thing and that it's not seen because I've spoken to some men about this and sometimes their their need or their um, parental duties can be seen as some kind of weakness where in women it's kind of expected oh well that woman's going to have to do things but, but men aren't given that uh, flexibility and freedom which they deserve and they need as well. They do need it and it is and, and anecdotally it's very obvious they are taking a stronger role in rearing their children. There is no question about that. I don't think it's reflected in statistics, but it really is time for men to speak out. Well, I think sometimes the conversation happens first, doesn't it? The people are allowed to talk and then things start to change. But I just a uh, big shout out to John Legend because he um, has been in the public eye recently talking about the double standards that were applied to him and his wife, Chrissy Teigen. Basically, everything that she's done as a new mother it was really scrutinised and he's been kind of doing things wrong and messing up, but he doesn't get, you know, a look in and people don't want to talk about that. The scrutiny is all on the mother. So people like John Legend, that's great for them talking out. And also, um, I don't know if you saw the viral um, picture of a man changing his baby's nappy in the in the men's changing rooms, but having to squat on the floor. It looked quite, you know, difficult and a bit dangerous. And Unhygienic. as a result of this, yeah, as a result of this um, picture going viral, Pampers have stood up and they've said that they're going to fund 5,000 uh, changing facilities in bathrooms, men's bathrooms across America. So that's really good. I mean, like, you know, we all know brands get involved in these things sometimes are a bit cynical but that seems like a great thing Chris O'Dowd uh, the actor he was tweeting about that having you know having tried to change a baby over a sink and I think men are experiencing this there's nowhere for them to go when they want to change and we'll be talking things. about marketing uh, mm. ruses uh, as well in our next we subject Roshi well, and we're going to say that in fact sometimes they're very positive sometimes they are the next thing we were going to talk about is sports bras yes which, there's a fascinating history. Well, the first thing to say is it's an industry over 5 billion euro, I think, is uh, how much it's worth now. But the great news this week, we, we talked last week about the uh, Women's World Cup and how it's starting. We had a great chat about that. And for the first time, the sports bra has been included in the Women's World Cup kit. Isn't that unbelievable? It's kind of amazing, isn't that it? That has never been regarded as a piece of kit that's essential yeah. to a woman running around a pitch. Are, are just running. And we were looking into the history a bit because we had a piece on irishtimes.com this week and uh, apparently the first one was two jock straps stitched together. That was the first sports In the bra. 1970s? <laughs> yes. I mean, we're not talking about 1870. And so then you wonder, you know, you, you look at those sort of things and you say, well, that's their such barriers to women getting involved because the fact is women have breasts Then when they do sports, you know, it can be uncomfortable unless they're really supported. So the technology in them now is, is quite amazing as well. They're much better. But still, Still, when you go into a sports shop, that's the problem. You know, you where are they, and and are they there for for sizes that are not considered sort of marathon running? Uh, I know last just before the Dublin Marathon last year, I happened to be with my daughter Sarah Garrity, who was looking for a plain black vest and plain black shorts, and that was the first effort because the chain, all of the stores, the the usual chains, where you where you would expect serious running gear. 
there was zillions of it for men. And for the women, there was this stuff that you might just wear to a nice brunch with your female friends. But for serious running, there was actually nothing. But actually what killed me in the end was she began to get very interested in it. She wrote a piece for the journal.ie in the end about it because she began to talk to other women about their adolescent daughters and about the difficulty of finding sports bras. So they'd be very keen little footballers and then they begin to develop bosoms. And then Bosoms, suddenly, sorry, Cathy, it's such a great word. You don't hear it, it very often. I know, <laughs> bosoms. Because they are. I mean, some little girls get very large bosoms and very awkward, unwieldy bosoms. And But anyway, we all have bosoms. That's the point. Uh, or at least we hope we do. Um, but in the end, wh- what, what really got up her nose was talking to women about their adolescent daughters and how they couldn't find unpadded sports bras. And then she began to show me this marketing stuff for for sportswear by very well-known uh, sports brands. And the one I remember most specifically is a Kardashian. Right. Steadying herself against a wall in a push-up sports bra yeah. that's, you know, barely reaches below her, her bosoms and uh, matching cycling shorts, mm. basically. It was not a running outfit by any stretch no. of the imagination. And like, let's hope it's changing. But it's, it's this idea that when women, whatever women wear, they're all about the look of it. They're all about the style. They're all Absolutely. about sexualizing themselves yes. and glamorizing themselves, which, you know, when you're especially halfway through a marathon, I don't think is your priority. Um, it also brings to mind the, the size 16 mannequin that caused a bit of a stir uh, this week. Like not only so people on the one hand give out about people being overweight and then you go to a sports shop trying to find clothes to fit you when you want to go exercising and you're told no we only do it up to this size but this size 16 mannequin anyway some people were saying oh that's encouraging people to be overweight so ridiculous I mean it's really sensible to say exercises for every size and shape of person you know everybody needs to exercise people who are very small and skinny need to exercise people who are overweight needs you know or bigger size or fat or whatever you want to say everyone should be open to the idea of exercising but also it casts an odd light on their on their on their research I mean for example this woman, uh, Eartha Pond, who is an international, an English international footballer, uh, or was she was she was talking about about um, about the difficulty of her finding a sports bra when she began to develop bosoms, and she said sometimes I wore two sports bras and padding and bandages to be comfortable, and if I'd forgotten my bra, there was no way I could participate. But actually, Nike, it interestingly says. Uh, about the psychological difference between male and female athletes uh, or just plain people who want to exercise. And they say, whereas our male players prefer a very fitted, almost tight fit, as it makes them feel like superheroes, our female athletes do not feel the same way. Uh, so They want they, a shirt that's just designed just to, to sit, sit on their body. They free don't, of their yeah. body. So yeah. actually, they've got it completely wrong because it's the right. men who are more interested in looking like these superhero type in people. In the body And the women want to be very comfortable. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the good news, I mean, this yeah. is actually positive in it spite positive. of all this. We're getting there. There is now a sports bra yeah. in the English footballer's kit. Um, and we are getting to a point now where you don't have to send away to an American sportswear company for a bra, a sports bra for your teenage daughter. And we'll have to continue by saying that everyone watched the Women's World Cup. There was a match on the other night and it was the US versus Thailand. And I think America won by 13 goals or something. The poor Thailand team didn't stand a chance. But they're all being um, shown on TG Car and on RTE. So 
it's we could get our daughters sit around and watch a few matches, you know, and, and let them see the things, the heroes and the sporting uh, figures. Like I said it to my daughters this morning, and they were like, "I didn't know women played soccer." I mean, I know. Oh. I don't know what sort of family. Oh, I thought yours was a very woke household. Well, what I happened there? So too, but clearly, <laughs> it can get more woke. It needs That's to be terrible. woker. Um, speaking of not being woke, we could talk about Kylie Jenner. We'll just mention it very briefly. She threw a party a cocktail party for her very glamorous friends on the theme of The Handmaid's Tale. So she had all the costumes, she had all the cocktails and it, yeah, we better not talk about it too long but I was thinking earlier, it'd be like me saying to you, Cathy, do you want to come to my Magdalene laundry party? I'm going to have people with mangles and, you know, aprons and stuff like that. It would be kind of like that. And my Chernobyl party. (laughs) Yes. It is, it is, it is, she's, now she's only 21 so, and she's a child of Instagram. And that doesn't excuse her. But also, I would like to say that I think The Handmaid's Tale now has become... A, 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 it's a little bit such, overdone. Such a, almost a it's celebration sort of, of violence against women that I cannot watch it anymore. Well, I know what you mean, the actual show itself. Yeah. yeah. Well, I yeah. tried to say that to Margaret Atwood last week at Boris Festival and saying how much, I, you know, I was too sensitive, I couldn't watch it. And she just went, it's just a show. Watch yeah. the show, Roisin. Watch the show. Well, maybe that, maybe, that, maybe like that's what poor little Kylie was thinking. It's just a show. Yeah, maybe you know, so I'll just have a few cocktails and wear some red dresses. In better news for women, I think uh, we could finish by talking about a really good thing that's happened in India, in Delhi, where they, they've introduced free public transport for women. Now, immediately, you probably have people going, oh, why do women get better treatment? But it's so important there in terms of safety for women on public transport, in terms of women getting out in the workforce. You had a statistic there, Cathy, didn't you? About I think I was quite astonished to discover that no more than 12% of women above the age of 15 are in employment in Delhi, which is actually quite shocking, yeah. considering the poverty and the fact that women probably do so much unpaid work I mean, that that probably that is not at all representative of female labour, obviously, but it is quite shocking. And a lot of that is down to the fact that they have no transport, no money, that their in-laws quite often disapprove of them working in the first place. I mean, there are also the fact that there's so many attacks on public transport, too. So in this way, they're getting the free transport and they get these special pink tokens uh, and and places to to go into the public transport and stuff like that. So I think it's a really forward thinking idea and it hopefully is. will have um, long reaching effects for, for women in that part of the world. It, it's it's wonderful. And speaking of male, the, male, the male contribution to the household, one of the stories in that piece, which is on IndiaSpend.com, talks about a woman who commutes 90 minutes each way to her job. That means two buses. It's partly on foot with her toddler in hand. And meanwhile, our husband travels to his factory job by motorbike. <sighs> and the instalments are paid from both their wages. Right. So I'm kind of hoping that your call out maybe uncover stories like this um, by men who sort of suddenly realise there is a bit of a um, an imbalance here. Yeah. Uh, but we should start talking about it. But that's it. Let's have the conversations. Roisin, thank you so much. That was fascinating. I loved you keeping saying bosoms. I think you said it around 12 times. Bosoms. (laughs) Bosoms. Now, the new book by author and journalist Joan Smith is genuinely powerful and truly shocking. In Homegrown, she writes that the violence perpetrated by men against women 
whether sexual, physical or psychological or all of the above, creates terror, but is not recognised as a form of terrorism. The book begins with a quote from Nazir Afzal, former Chief Crown Prosecutor for the North West of England, who said, There was research in the 1980s. The number one finding was that the first victim of an extremist or terrorist is the woman in his own home. We've forgotten that. We have not built on that. I spoke to Joan about her research, which proves this link yet again. Joan, you write in your acknowledgements about the friends who supported you when the weight of the material was almost too much to bear. And I can concur with that because I found it very painful reading. What was it like to write? It was actually the hardest book I've written. Um, And it really meant that for the best part of a year, I was just immersed in tracking the histories of, I think it's getting on for 50 very violent men, both terrorists in in a number of countries and and those men who go out and shoot lots of people in the United States, ostensibly not for a political motive. So um, because there's so little research on terrorists, I actually had to look for this material myself in published sources, you know, finding local paper reports of court trials and things like that. And towards the end, I really was having nightmares and sleeping very badly. And you know, my friends got used to the fact that I needed to talk about it. But yes. um, yeah, it was, it was a I'd say you were a great company for a while, yes. weren't you? <laughs> yes, yes. Let's go out with Joan and she'll talk about terrorism all evening, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. and about domestic violence and all those yes. things we love to hear about over a nice yes. glass of wine. But uh, Joan, what is fascinating about it is that you... Uh, you you point out how domestic violence has almost become something that is is virtually ignored. And on the one hand, there's a lot of talk about it. On the other hand, it's virtually ignored. But you have slotted it into something that's deeply important and that does have reverberations for all of society throughout the world. This is genuinely a global problem as opposed to just a woman-only problem, as it's been seen. It absolutely is. And, you know, it's just amazingly prevalent. So um, in England and Wales, um, the figures that the government's own figures are that 1.1.2 million women suffer some form of domestic abuse every year. That's a lot of the population. And, you know, most of these these attacks um, and the abuse never gets reported. And it doesn't get the attention that other crimes get. So last year in London, when there was a, a huge amount of public attention on knife crime, quite rightly, because it destroys young lives and it destroys families. At the same time, the number of domestic homicides in London last year tripled. And yet there was almost nothing about it anywhere, because it's almost as if we don't, you know, it's almost as if domestic violence is is a crime that's expected, you know, it's normalised. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to say that we shouldn't be normalising this, and it doesn't stay in one category, you know, male violence doesn't. And so we know that lots of rapes actually take place in the context of domestic violence. They're men who abuse their wives um, and assault them sexually as well. And domestic and, and terrorism actually is a form of, of, of male violence. And you can't you can't uncouple it from other forms of male violence such as domestic abuse. And that's the very striking thing, Joan, about the book is that you noticed as these as 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 these as 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 details of these attacks became you became aware of them that a lot of these men, in fact, the vast majority, had a history of domestic violence. 
That's right. And I started to notice it first with the mass shooters in the States. And um, there is some there is some research on this in, 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 the, in the other side of the Atlantic that um, the, the best known study looked at five years of mass shootings in, in, in America. And I think it was nearly 60 percent of them included um, a relative, a close relative, usually um, a wife or a girlfriend, ex-wife, sometimes a mother among the victims. And even more of them had a history of abusing women in the home first. And then I began to notice the same thing with terrorists. So in 2016, there was that horrific attack in Nice on the Promenade des Anglais when a man drove a, a very large hired truck into, into um, people who were just going home after a fireworks display, killed an awful lot of people and injured nearly 500. And he was a horrendous domestic abuser. And then in 2017, I noticed the same things with the attacks in London and Manchester. And I actually brought it up in a meeting with a very senior police officer um, because I, I chair the Mayor's Violence Against Women and Girls Board in London, so I have lots of meetings with the police. And I said, have you noticed they're all domestic abusers? And he said he hadn't, and he went back to Scotland Yard and he said, what data do we have on the backgrounds of terrorists? And they have a they have a database of about 400 convicted terrorists, plus the ones who've killed themselves or been killed. And the answer was, we don't have any data because nobody's ever asked the question. And I think that's because the people who study terrorism see it as prim primarily a problem of ideology, whereas I see it as primarily a problem of male violence. John, what that, that actually was the bit that fascinated me amid all the terrible stories was the response of that man who sounds like a decent man, hardworking man. He was genuinely surprised by your question, by the link you were making, and said the connection had never come up, not even once in any of the discussions he's had over many years with experts in terrorism. He and actually said that he, he said, I've been sit sitting in meetings on terrorism with experts for probably 20 years and nobody has ever brought this up. And yet, Joan, the book begins with a quote from Nazir Afzal, former Chief Crown Prosecutor for the Northwest of England, who says... There was research in the 1980s and the number one finding was that the first victim of an extremist or terrorist is the woman in his own home. We've forgotten that, he said. We haven't built on that. So there was research there. There was, and it, it, it was in the context of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and it was looking at how often um, terrorists were also men who abused women in, in, in the home. Um, but I, even then, I don't think it got a lot of attention. And when I first talked to Nazir about it, because I did actually interview him for the book, he, he, I think he and I feel on a similar mission to actually bring this back to public attention and say, this has been known about for years, but it gets forgotten, and you have to say it over and over again. And it's particularly urgent now because I think there is a what, what I'm arguing in the book is that domestic violence actually lowers the threshold that these are men who are violent habitually and they're used to violence they're used they're probably quite excited about it because it makes them feel powerful they're used to doing it at home unlike the rest of us and what what's happening I think is that it's creating a small pool of dangerous men who actually like extremist ideology whether it's the far right or whether it's Islamist because they they like violence themselves it's part of their lives and then they encounter groomers and extremists propaganda which is saying yes it's all right to be violent and then and, and you know it sort of creates the situation in which they're they're going to be attracted to that which explains why so many were radicalized in the space of a few weeks in some cases what you say joan is that this destructive male rage accumulates for decades and that simply enables the ideology so it's the it's the violence that came first 
Yes. So our, my argument is that we've got this the wrong way around, that people keep expressing surprise and saying, good God, this man was radicalized in a matter of six weeks. Well, that's actually, uh, it's unlike, he might be radicalized in, in a short space of time, but it's unlikely that somebody would become that violent, murderously violent in such a short space of time. So my argument is that we have to see this as a problem of male violence and men who like male violence first, who are then susceptible to, to extremist ideology. Joan, tell me a bit about, about some of these people. Give me a couple of examples of, of the, the research you came up with. Khalid Masood, for example. Yes, so the 2017 attacks, they, they're incredibly striking. And of course, you know, I live in London, so, so um, they, they strike close to the heart of a city that I, I, I was born and live in. Um, Khalid Masood, um, he is the Westminster Bridge attacker. He hired an SUV and he drove it onto Westminster Bridge, mowing people down. And then he jumped out and he ran around the corner and he stabbed a, a police officer to death, PC Keith Palmer, and was then shot by um, an armed police officer. Now, he um, is, is, was a, a career criminal. He, he was in his 50s, so he's older than most um, terrorists. But he, he had a long criminal record of extreme violence. He'd been acquitted of attempted murder, but he had some quite serious um, convictions for violence. And eventually, he converted to Islam in prison. And after that, he stopped being violent in public. But he had a horrendous record. He, he married a young Muslim woman after he converted, and she ran away from him after three months because he was so violent. And then he married another woman, and they were separated at the time of the, the attacks. And she talked about, you know, extreme coercive control. Now, he, he was an Islamist. I mean, he, he was a follower of, of, you know, sort of um, very extreme um, Islamic preachers and so on. But what's interesting is that is that Darren Osborne, who was his exact opposite on paper, so he's the man who attacked the Finsbury Park Mosque and uh, drove, deliberately drove into worshippers as they left a mosque because he wanted to kill Muslims, and he did in fact kill one man. Um, he was a career criminal as well. I mean, he had 102 criminal convictions, including for... Um, actual bodily harm on his partner with whom he had four children and she eventually threw him out and he again he's one of the ones who supposedly radicalized in about six weeks but by right-wing extremists but what's incredibly striking is that these two men who on paper are, couldn't be further apart in terms of ideology are very very similar in terms of their record of violence and their record of violence in the family. One of the things that I noticed over the years, Joan, before your book brought it all together for me, was how important the use of language is. I remember after the, the Khalid Masood story began to come out, this, uh, the senior national coordinator for UK counterterrorism, whom I'm sure you come across, his name is Neil Basu, I think. Yeah. Um, he just d d said there was clearly an interest in jihad, which I thought at the time lent him such an air of nobility and notions of heroic martyrdom. And... In fact, he turns out to be a big delusional bully with an anger management problem. <laughs> and I think one of, one of the, the, one of the, the patterns I, I recognised when I was doing the research is that there are a number of men who actually turn to terrorism, to public violence, after they've lost access to their primary victims. So they get thrown out of the home. That's what, Hallett, that's what happened to Darren Osborne six weeks before um, he committed the, the terrorist attack. His partner had finally thrown him out of the house. And there's a number of men in the book. The, the niece attacker, his, his wife had finally got him out of the house a few 
months before um, he became a terrorist. And I think these men are so enraged and angry at being thrown out of the home that they actually want this, they want this warrior identity. There's an Iranian man I, I write about in the book who um, took, took hostages in a coffee shop in Sydney in December 2014. And he actually pulled out a gun and he announced that he was an operative of Islamic State. What he actually was, was a serial rapist who had organized the, the murder of his ex-wife. And he was actually chased, um, facing charges of being an accessory in the murder of his ex-wife. And he was, he was also facing 40 charges of rape and sexual assault. But, you know, he, he chose to reinvent himself at that moment as an Islamic warrior. I mean, this is nonsense. This is kind of fantasies about being a, being a soldier. Um, and, and they're very, you know, these are very narcissistic men who can't bear being held to account. What is also interesting about your book, Joan, is in, in the case of the brothers and, and brothers feature prominently in this pairs of brothers, uh, which is one of the one of the very interesting things that comes out in your book. But the, the, the two the two brothers in Paris, Sharif and Saeed Gouache, yes, yes, their background is truly shocking. And it's one of the things that makes your book so well worth reading, I think, is that on the one hand, none of this can ever be excused. On the other hand, their family background is truly horrific. Just tell me a little bit about them. Yes, there's a whole chapter in the book about children who grow up in abusive families and how they, they the boys, um, and very occasionally the girls, because that's very rare, um, turn to violence as young adults. And of course, it, it isn't inevitable. You know, there, there are children who grow up in abusive households and there may be an, you know, an, an adult who intervenes, who helps and, and counters the, the violence they're witnessing. But there is a pattern of boys um, observing a father's violence, being very angry about it, helpless about it. And that's certainly the case of the of the Kouashi brothers. And there you've got an absolutely toxic mixture of their parents came to Paris from Algeria. They lived in a very poor part of Paris, which was attractive to immigrants because it was the housing was cheap. The father was violent to the, to the mother and all the children. Um, they suffered racism. The father died of cancer. The mother was left on her own with four children and couldn't cope. She eventually um, asked the state to take uh, look after the two elder boys and instead of putting them in a foster care they, they were moved 300 miles away to the centre of France, to a very white part of France. You know, it's not about excusing it at all, but it's it's trying to it's trying to track the origin of the rage that eventually erupts on the public stage. And in the case of those boys, you've got a whole uh, accumulation of what we call um, adverse childhood experiences, you know, parental violence, loss of both parents, their, their mother eventually died as well, um, dislocation, being the family being split up. And, and you know, you've got the added, the added um, uh, consideration of racism and so on. So they grew up very, very angry young men. And at the school that they were at in, in the centre of France, um, there wasn't much evidence of them being particularly religious at all. And as soon as they could, they returned to Paris. One of them ended up homeless. And they started going to a mosque where, unfortunately, they encountered a, a young preacher who actually encouraged them to again, think of themselves as um, as Islamic warriors. And, you know, years later, they committed this terrible atrocity going into the Charlie Hebdo office and, and murdering 11 journalists. Um, and um, you, you can actually sort of track back the origin of that rage. And I, I think we need to do that if we're going to stop these kind of attacks. And it's how, how that attack happened as well, Joan, that they relished targeting certain individuals 
It wasn't just a mad burst of, of anger running into an office. It was carefully planned and they did target people. There was this, this sense of having power at last. Yes, they, t- they, 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 you know, you, you can imagine that they burst in and, as you say, started firing straight away. That's not what happened. They walked in quite calmly and they asked for individual journalists by name and then they shot them dead one by one. And they did shoot one woman. Um, they, they, they killed one female um, writer for the paper. And they, they, they sh- one of them shouted, we don't kill women, we don't kill women. But of course they did. And they also claimed afterwards that they wouldn't kill fellow Muslims. But on the way out, they were confronted by an unarmed um, young police officer who was Muslim, as it happened. And they, they, they shot him dead as well. So, you know, they, they, they had this fantasy Fantasy. And this, this comes up over and over again. These, these men have a fantasy of themselves as, you know, important people, warriors, you know, held, having power over people. And it was almost victim blaming. You know, he, he, one of them told one of the women in the office that he wouldn't shoot her. Um, but, you know, he was kind of he was kind of glorying in the fact that, that he, he was he was letting her off, so to speak. And you can see, you know, they're enjoying that. The, it's a very temporary power and it's a very nasty power, but they're enjoying it. And the woman they shot, I think, Joan, was Jewish, was she? She was Jewish and her family have always believed that that's why she was targeted, given that she was the only woman who was who was killed. And of course, if you try that, that attack was in January 2015. If you go all the way back to the early 2000s, um, the younger brother was um, part of this network, which which was training young men and sending them to fight um, against the Americans in Iraq. And he, he actually was one of the ones who was trained to go. And he kept complaining and saying, no, I want to carry out a terrorist attack here. And what he wanted to do in Paris was he wanted to attack a synagogue or Jewish shops. And you can see that this, this you know, choosing a, a group, uh, it, it's scapegoating. So for his first chosen scapegoat was Jewish. But later, you know, he, he, he and his brother actually attacked um, journalists. So you can see that the, the hate is there very, very early on. The hate and the rage are there. And it's looking for a target. And, unf- and of course, the, their co-conspirator, who was called Ahmed Koulibaly, he actually took um, hostages and, and murdered people in a Jewish supermarket in Paris. So you can see that the, the rage, you know, predates the actual choosing of the target. They're looking for people to blame. And unfortunately, as we know, you know, it's very easy to identify groups of people. It's quite often women, Jews, Muslims and What they're doing is they're projecting their own self-hatred, I think, onto these groups. And this is is what your book does so powerfully, Joan. Um, One one of the things that did jump out at me, actually, was because you're always looking for these common threads between them. Anabolic steroids. Oh, yes, yes. So there's... um, there's a, a, a bit of a pattern in the book of um, men using gyms, pumping, you know, pumping iron, that kind of thing. And um, the, the the London Bridge attackers, all three of them were using anabolic steroids. The Westminster Bridge attacker, who we've already talked about, he was um, using anabolic steroids. The man who attacked the Pulse nightclub in, in Orlando, in Florida, um, who attacked a gay nightclub and killed, I think, 49 people, an absolutely horrific attack. He was a security guard, um, you know, a man who was, he wanted to become a cop and and they wouldn't take him because he was unstable. So he became a security guard. He was using,
using steroids. And he was, he, his first wife ran away from him very quickly because he was so violent and he was abusing his second wife at the time of the attack. But I think there's something about these men. Um, it's a sort of parodic version of masculinity. You know, we associate it with kind of bulging neck and arm muscles and so on. And you can see that they're actually attracted by this notion, an actual physical notion of masculinity, which is, which is a kind of bit of a parody, really. Joan, what is to be done? I mean, obviously, you have very decidedly established this link now. Um, you talked to this, this uh, police officer, this very high-ranking police officer, who says there's still no data showing the link between domestic terrorism, as I'll call it after reading your book, and, and, um, and the terrorism we know of, the external terrorism we know of. I mean, how do we distinguish between these mouthy, angry young men or even older men and, and those who will eventually become terrorists? Well, Nasir Afzal and I have talked about this a lot. And so um, in the UK context, you know, the, 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 the MI5 has a list basically of 3,000 suspects that they think might be planning an attack. They're the high risk ones. There's another pool of about 20,000. It's probably a bit bigger now because the figures are a bit out of date. And they're people they've looked at because they show extremist sympathies, but they don't think they're in, imminently planning an attack. Now, our argument is that you can't possibly follow 23,000 people, but actually you don't need to because what you do is you look at the ones who are already violent in the home and use that as, as, a, as a kind of an indicator, a warning sign. And I, there's a report about to come out. I'm not sure when it's being published, but there's a report about to come out um, about the 27, the sort of definitive report on the 2017 attacks. And I think it's going to say that MI5 are going to look at that list of 20,000 people again. And they've become aware that those men might become imminently dangerous if they suffer what they call a, tra a traumatic episode. And one of the things they're going to look at is relationship breakdown. So I think it's beginning to get through because there is this pattern of men who are attracted to extre extremism and then something happens in the home, the family actually finally gets them, forces them to leave, and they're absolutely furious. And that's the moment when they're incredibly dangerous. So if MI5 is starting to look at that, then I think we're getting somewhere. Well, you certainly are, Joan. But you also point out that domestic violence, misogyny, it doesn't even appear on the indexes on bookshelves. I mean, it's, it, it, this is, I suppose, one of the most frustrating things about reading your book is that it, it is treated as such an exceptional side issue to terrorism that I, one has to hope that this is leading somewhere. And there is a problem, of course, because because it's so hard to get convictions for, you know, the routine kind of domestic violence that, that, that you know, that doesn't involve terrorism. Some of those men who are dangerous won't actually have convictions. They won't have come to the attention to the police um, as, as men who are who are beating up female relatives. And we know that, um, I mean, the UK statistics are that uh, half of 999 calls to domestic violence in, incidents don't even result in an arrest. So there's all kind of interventions interventions that we can make. Um, but I'm hoping that by showing this link, um, the way domestic terrorism actually turns into public terrorism, I'm hoping that it will change public attitudes, not just to terrorism, but to the way the authorities deal with domestic violence. I mean, one of the things you point out, Joan, is that there is no register for, for um, domestic violence offenders, you know, unlike rapists and paedophiles. That seems to me yes, to be such right. an obvious lack 
this is incredibly frustrating. And um, and we ask ourselves, you know, why on earth isn't there a domestic violence register? Because um, at least if, if you're on the um, sexual offenders register, you actually have to tell the police where you're living. Um, you know, they, they, they know where you are. They can track your activities. Um, uh, you know, a, a woman can ask if, if there's if, 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 if a new partner has any kind of record and so on. But a domestic abuser can simply move to another part of the country, start a new relationship. There's no obligation on him to tell the authorities that he's starting a new relationship. There's, you know, there, there is a there is something called Claire's Law. So if you, if you if you have a new boyfriend and you're suspicious about him, you can ask the local police. Does he have any record of domestic violence? Some forces will actually have those records and tell you but it's it's very patchy but you know there isn't a central register where the police are having to keep a, keep an, an eye on these people and see what they're doing in terms of relationships and i think one of the reasons is probably resources simply because there are so many of them there are so many of them joan but it's terribly important that they could be kept an eye on and maybe your book is going to accomplish that amazing feat are finally bringing attention to the to the to the extent of domestic violence, but also to where it can lead if 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 people go on ignoring it. Are you optimistic? Um, I'm, I've actually been very. Um uh, I, I'm buoyed up by the reaction to the book that people have actually taken the argument on board, and you know, loads of people have been in touch um, saying they've they've read it. And um, I know that you know, um, organisations that deal with offenders and and and, and support women um, have have already read the book. So, and and, and I've heard that um, at City Hall, you know, that the countering um, uh, ext- violent extremism team are already looking at the links and so on. So, I think sometimes. You you can actually point out something which is incredibly simple, like I did with my book Misogynies actually a long time ago. Um, and, you know, every, it kind of opens people's eyes. And, and, you know, that's that's the most a writer can hope for, really. Well, the book is powerful, Joan. Um, as I say, I stood up at about 3am reading it with my heart in my mouth a lot of the time and found it hard to sleep afterwards. And that's quite an achievement for me. So thank you so much indeed for the work and for the pain and for all the rest and for bringing it to our attention. Joan Smith, thanks so much for being on the Women's Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Earlier this week, newly elected Labour Party councillor Annie Hoy was asked on live radio whether it is appropriate, quote, for elected women to have children given that they are, quote, not elected to have babies. She later tweeted saying she had never been asked so many times about when or whether she would be having children as she had been since she had been elected. Councillor Hoy came into the Women's Podcast studio and spoke to Roisin Ingle about the experience and what it says about the treatment of women in politics. Annie, you were on the radio yesterday and you were asked something very interesting. And actually, I have the transcript of what the the man on LMFM said. His name was Michael Reid. And I should also mention here that actually Michael Reid has been in touch with me via email to say that his interview on LMFM was a very wide ranging one. It runs for over 13 minutes, so you can go and have a listen if you want to. And he also said that the stuff that you, Annie, were tweeting about afterwards relates to issues around the lack of maternity leave for Oireachtas members and if there should be a referendum to allow members to vote remotely. 
So on air, you were making the very valid point that when the system was being built for politicians, nobody was really thinking uh, about women and looking after them and the fact that women like to have children and also men like to have children too. It's not just a female-only pursuit. And you were talking about that. Um, And the first thing you were asked was if the woman is elected to a national parliament, should the husband not look after the child? And then is it an appropriate time to be having children if you are there to represent people in how the country was being run? And I don't know at that point why, how you didn't just say, uh, what are you talking about? But what was your response at that point? I think, I, I believe I used the word take great umbrage. <laughs> um, I, I honestly, when you're doing an interview, you kind of keep going. You don't tend to, um, you know, it's not in my nature just to have a blazing row. So I was like, I'm going to keep going with this and just try and not explode live on air. Yeah, and you're very um, good. You were trying to make the point to him that when you become a politician, your, your entire life isn't on hold. It's not like you stop making your decisions that you need to make in your life and you're not on call 24 hours a day to, to please the electorate. But then he didn't let it go, as so often men don't. He said, but this isn't normal business. People won't elect you to have a baby. They elect you to pass laws and to improve their lives, won't they? So it's this idea that you should go into politics and you shouldn't be having children. You should be putting that part of your life on hold because, well, clearly that's not the business that you should be doing. I mean, you were very calm with him, but having you tweeted then uh, yesterday and there was a huge response to it because it's kind of like almost what he said only kind of impacted after you were off air. Yeah, because I mentioned it afterwards to a couple of friends. And I was like, Asher, look. And then yesterday I was like, wait a minute, this, is, this isn't acceptable and I can't be the only one that's experiencing this and I can't believe we're the new crop now coming in of councillors and we're still going through this. You know, I was, we were studying this when I did women's studies 10 years ago in college and we're still at it, still talking about it. And I think it was interesting, even the comparison that you can only do one or the other. You can't have children and make laws and improve people's Men lives. Men seem to be able to do it though. Incredible how they've managed... <laughs> And managed to find it deep within themselves to both have children and to allegedly improve people's lives and somehow women can't do that. OK, so that was the interview with Michael Reid. But moving on from that now, while on the campaign trail and since being elected, you faced loads of gendered questions, including about your plans or not plans to have children. Has that surprised you? Well, I... I I never really thought that it was going to be a problem and I've never been asked more than in my life than in the last two weeks since I got elected um, when and if I'm having children. Uh, what age I am seems to be a particularly exciting one to, to, to probably just pinpoint exactly where I am in my fertility years because I'm quite young still and I've never been asked that. My partner's never been asked that. Um, when I talk to male politician friends who are the exact same age as me, none of them have been asked. So who's been asking you this, Annie? Oh, everyone and anyone. And men um, and women? Yeah. Okay. Um, but mostly men, which is an interesting space. Women more in the kind of knowing way, like this is going to come up and people are going to be questioning you. And we're and kind of like, a, don't worry, we're here and we'll figure it out. We haven't figured it out ourselves, but we're going to make it better. Um, but it's really, it's a really interesting question. No one knows my reproductive health. No one knows my reproductive history. No one knows whether... <laughs> You've had miscarriages. No one knows anything about it. Yeah. You don't want children. It's not, you know, 
do you have you come up with a, an answer yet for those very invasive questions? Because actually, a colleague of mine, Rosita Boland, just wrote a book about her travel memoirs, and the last chapter is really interesting on this because Rosita was trying for a long time to adopt, and that was her story. And she finds it very difficult when people ask, "Have you children?" and you know, "Why don't you have children?" and "You must have a cat," are the kind of things that are said to her. Um, she's uh, come up with a response that says, "You know, not for the want of trying." When people ask her, which shuts people up, I'm not saying you could end that route, but I suppose you're going to have to. It seems like it's going to be a regular thing that you're going to have to, uh, you know, respond to, which is nobody's business, really. Well, I think that might start becoming my answer. <laughs> quite a sharp rebuke, perhaps. I mean, because I'm, I'm quite a friendly person, I'm quite a collegial person. I don't tend to take huge uh, upset at things, but it is becoming a little bit tiring. It, it's irksome that I've been asked more about my reproductive choices than how is the new job going. And it's real interesting in terms of the dy- dynamic close friends are not asking that because they know my opinion on children. But complete strangers who don't really know me at all seem to think it's all right to ask a young woman, when am I having children and is my partner okay with that? And actually, a lot of people have asked, um, how is my partner taking, my fiancé taking the fact that I've been elected? Like, and how, and what about him? Well, sorry, I just, I know I should be aware of what they're trying to say there, but can you understand what they're trying to say, that he should be put out, that you've been elected to this kind of... Uh, position seems to be the implication there. Like it's the oh God, he's going to be le- what? What on earth is he going to do without you? And he's doing really quite well, actually. I think he's delighted. I'd be glad to have a bit of peace. Yeah, no harm, Johnny. I'm, I'm arguing with other people now <laughs> yeah. instead of him. So, but it's just so strange. How old are you, Annie? I'm allowed to ask you that because yeah, we're talking about it. All. I'm just gone thirty. Right. So, is it? Has it been surprising to you? Because we all know about sexism. We all know these things go on. We're used to it. We've lived it, you know. And your generation, younger than me, you've kind of been much more aware of it and kind of active around it. Take maybe took my generation a little bit longer to be well, some of us uh, to be sort of outspoken about it all. But has it still been surprising to you that these are questions you're having to deal with? Yeah, it's surprising because it's just suddenly happened. It's like I've suddenly gotten this other kind of life. I've gone from being your know, involved in politics and doing all of these repeaty kind of things to working in this, you know, apparently grown up world of of politics. And suddenly the line of questioning and how people treat me has completely changed. Um, people are much more interested in what I'm going to do at every minute of every day. Uh, they're much more interested in how my personal life is going. No one ever really asked me during like the referendum, like, oh, how's your partner at home dealing with you being campaigning? You know, it, it's a different world to be in. And it's a world where people still expect you to be all self-sacrificing. There's this weird idea in politics in Ireland where it's both A, shameful, um, I don't understand why I'm not ashamed of putting myself forward for election nor being elected or for doing what I hope is the best I can do for the next five years, but also that you have to be all sacrificing. This idea that politicians must somehow sacrifice all of themselves, be available 24-7 and women must pause anything. Um, but you, the, the idea that you would have the audacity to um, have a family while at the same time being this great honour to be elected. I'm not saying it's not a great honour, I'm honoured to have been elected, but this weird idea of this, you, you must give up all and everything about yourself to be this pure, uh, even though no one actually is that. And of course, out of the same mouth that people are saying you must be pure and all good politician, we're all also entirely and utterly evil at the same time. Um, you know, it, it's this bizarre dichotomy that people expect of politicians and I'm just suddenly getting a wave of it coming at me. Um, and do you think in the, on the self-sacrificing thing that men get it as well but they just don't get it in terms of their children it'd be more other things or, or do you think women get that more that if you're going to do it now you have to give up any things that you thought you might have and that's where the baby question comes in. Well I mean my experience is mostly around 
discussing at the moment with women who've been elected and this idea of being all perfect. Um, and we talk about this a lot. You know, there's lots of research into this. And I think it's Kathleen Lynch once said, I can't wait to vote for you know a mediocre woman. You have this idea of there's so much scrutiny and so much high expectation. Of course, the scrutiny and high expectation uh, for male politicians, although... Um, Joe, I, I'm when I talk to my male colleagues, there certainly doesn't seem to have been the level of scrutiny on their appearance or the level of scrutiny about their partners. I don't think any of my male colleagues have ever been asked about how is their poor partner at home withering without you? Who's going to do the dishes? Yeah, and the other thing is the questions aren't framed. If, so if people are going to be nosy, they could be supportively nosy. Like they could be, look, if you do want to have children, I hope that there's facilities there that will support you in that. And I hope things change. I hope there's more creches. I hope childcare costs come down. Like in that way, that kind of would be an interesting, useful conversation. But that doesn't seem to be the way that those questions are framed. No, not at all. It's 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 just in a... And you know, some people, possibly, you know, when people who have been elected and are aware that this is a something that's going to come up in my life. But I always feel like I know the difference between someone who's asking in a, look, this is going to come up and we're going to be there, you know, reach out anytime you want to. And someone who's just being outright nosy. Um, and you can always tell because we're human and we can tell when someone cares about the answer or someone that just kind of wants to get the juicy gossip. And the reason you were talking on the radio in the first place was because Sean O'Farrell um, was supporting gender quotas and he was saying that women should be, you know, that the Dolaren and the Chamber should be breastfeeding um, friendly zone and all those kind of things. So th- there are men out there who kind of seem to have a handle on where things should be going. I mean, most people seem to have uh, <laughs> a fairly decent level of common sense. You can even see that in the responses to the to my. Tell me about the responses. I mean, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Like, I really popped that tweet up, put a few threat, you know, comments underneath it about you know we need to there'd have to be a referendum if we wanted women to be able to vote from home and stuff like that, um, and then it just kind of exploded, um, and suddenly everyone was retweeting and responding. But most people were extraordinarily. Um, supportive and they just are astonished that we're still being asked these kinds of questions and I think I I don't know if the astonishment has quite hit me yet because I work in this sector and and we hear these stories all the time and I, I speak with women politicians all the time who have these comments made at them um, but I think people Joe as I said I was quite young getting elected and I think people were expecting that this is a sign of the changing times and you know the these kind of Neanderthal opinions were going to be elsewhere but most people are, are are just like I can't believe that this has been asked live on air. And like, and if you were asked this in any other, if you were asked this in a job interview, I was thinking that when that I saw your be, tweet, if it's, it's probably illegal to ask something like that in a, in a job interview, isn't it? I believe it would be, yeah. But I think you can do it on the radio. It's not legal. Definitely not illegal. Yeah. Well, I mean, people. It's interesting. People, when you, I suppose, when you run for public office, people assume that you are now public property. And look, that's if that's that's part of it. That's absolutely fine. I've no problem answering any questions about. Um, my life or anything like that but it's when people question the appropriateness for someone to make reproductive choices we've just come through a rather tedious couple of years around reproductive choices and people's right to choose around that mm. um, you know and, and, and it's interesting because lots of other there are other countries that managed to deal with women having well, children the Prime Minister of New Zealand she just had her baby there and um, the sky didn't fall in I believe New Zealand is still floating yeah. it's still there it, yeah. everything is fine <laughs> nothing has gone drastically wrong as yeah. of yet women have been having children Pe- parents have been raising children since the beginning of time and it's just a testimony to our system that we never expected women to participate in the way mm. that we are currently participating in it and I hope more uh, more so, but I mean, this is something that is. I think people will look at or could have heard that there could have been someone listening to that radio show going, "Well, actually, pff, certainly not going to put myself forward now." 
you know, and that's that's no way for us to have a political system where people are are going to not participate in it because they're afraid they're going to have their reproductive choices scrutinised live on air. Now, I'm not going to ask you, do you want to have children? Because it's none of my business. But I would like to ask you, what do you think should be there to support women who do want their political career, and men as well, parents, who want their political career, but they also want to be able to go, to be able to raise their children and not be completely... Um, you know, unable to do both because you can do both, as we've seen in many in many cases. So, what are we lacking? Do you think in Ireland, what needs to happen? What do we need to focus on? Well, I mean, particularly in the door, you shouldn't have to take sick leave in order to go and give birth. That's um, you know, when you, like that's crazy. Like you're not sick. You're just when you say it, it's just oh my god, yeah. You know, and it's unfortunate that in order to be able to deal with it in a meaningful way, so whether that's people being able to vote remotely and stuff like that, that's going to take. I believe, a referendum to change it. So for now, I suppose we need to look at um, creating supportive environments where there's proper childcare facilities, whether that's in our local chambers, um, affordable childcare. My God, when I was like, just, you know, after the conversation, briefly looked at how much childcare was going to cost and I nearly keeled over. I'd need a fourth job in order <laughs> to be able to afford it, never mind the ones I already have. You know, things like that. I mean, this and this isn't just for a political life. This is being able to facilitate parents participating in the workforce or participating in society, participating in their communities. And we need to really, I think, grasp that because it's just spiralling out of control. The cost of childcare, the expectation on who is going to raise children, the expectation on women in political life to immediately within weeks just bounce back and just appear back in the chamber again. And, you know, there's a huge expectation as well. So it's not just a financial problem or a structural problem. It's a societal expectation on how women and parents should behave. And I think on the other side, it's bringing in more the fact that also male politicians also want to care for their children, also want to be good members of their family, doing all the things that, you know, we think sometimes that it's only a mother's job to do. So the hope that hopefully those conversations can happen in tandem. Now, if you were said, the same thing was said to you again tomorrow by the same guy on on LMFM, do you think you'd have a different response because you were very nice really you said something like I would take great umbrage with the idea and you did say I think a lot of people would be quite appalled that people would be changing their life plans or not having families because they're in politics so you were very calm very measured which is good as well but do you think you might have a different um, answer given the re- response and the fact that you've had to think about it I mean I could probably I probably would have been a little bit saying I, I probably would say you, you. I don't believe that a male politician would be asked this question I mean I'm aware that I was on to talk about gender quotas and the reasons women weren't putting, running for politics um, but I think there's a line in terms of that questioning um, so I probably would say that I don't believe you would have asked any male politician this but I mean I think I still would have I always think when you're talking to someone you're not just talking to the interviewer you're talking to the listeners uh, that's what I tried to do I tried to reach out to the people who are listening to see I, I, I believe most people were appalled um, that that line of questioning happened and as we saw then to the response of the tweet people were appalled um, so sometimes you have to pick who it is you want to reach out to and I think it was important to put the onus back on the audience to see whether or not they thought this was acceptable and the response to me is that they didn't think it was acceptable at all. Well, Annie, this is the second time in, I think, a week that you've been on the Women's Podcast, so I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Maybe not talking about the same subject, um, but I think you've definitely opened a conversation that we seem to need to keep having, which is the depressing, as you say, draining thing, but it's still important to keep saying it because there are clearly lots of people out there who still, well, maybe not lots, there's still some people out there who think that 
women, you know, are about making babies and they can't also have other lives and do other things and contribute to society in a really meaningful way as a politician or whatever else that women want to do. Um, so I'm I'm glad you tweeted it. I'm glad you got that res- that response. And uh, I think, yeah, just we'll just come up with some really good comebacks when these questions are, are asked in the future, I think. Yeah, it's always life. As soon as you hang up, you're like, oh, gosh, I wish I should have, would have, could have said all these snarky things. Oh, my, you know, and you're kind of kicking yourself being like, I'm a bad feminist for not saying, for not saying those things. But look, you do what you do in the in the, the heat of the moment. That's it. Try and keep calm and not explode uh, at anyone. Well, you did very well. And thanks very much for coming in to tell us all about it. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our guests, Councillor Annie Hoy and the writer Joan Smith. Don't forget to enter our Green and Blacks competition to be in with a chance of winning a delicious hamper. Go to irishtimes.com slash competitions slash greenandblacks2019. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Until next time, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.